Welcome to the Benzo Free Podcast, your home for an honest, straightforward, and personal discussion about anti-anxiety drugs, their effects, and how to deal with dependence and withdrawal. Whether you have taken benzodiazepines, Z drugs, or any other tranquilizers, know someone who has, or you just want help dealing with chronic anxiety and insomnia, this is your podcast. I'm your host, D.E. Foster, author of the book, Benzo Free, The World of Anti-Anxiety Drugs and the Reality of Withdrawal. I'm so glad you joined us today. Please stick around and let me bend your ear for a few minutes. It just might feel a little better on the other side. Hello there, this is Dee, and welcome to episode 57 of the Benzo Free Podcast 57. <laughs> what the hell have I talked about for 57 episodes? Sorry, going a little off script here for a second. It just kind of hit me as I read that. Anyway, um, I'm going to try and keep our introduction brief today because we have a full lineup and, and plenty to share. So I guess I do have stuff to talk about. It's, it is still busy around here, but you know, you know, then again, it's busy everywhere. In fact, I think that may be one of the most popular sayings <laughs> that us humans say. We, we need to stop saying that. I need to stop saying that. We are all busy. And honestly, it's a silly game we play to constantly try and outdo each other with how busy we are. <laughs> so you know what? I take it back. I'm not busy. I'm good. I'm happy. And I'm blessed with work. There. Maybe that's a better saying. I'm blessed with work. And I mean that. Okay, I should really go back to my script here. <laughs> okay. Oh, you could tell I'm kind of in an ornery mood today, so sorry about that. <laughs> this week is a big week here at Benzo Free. It's the one-year anniversary of the podcast. <laughs> so that's probably why I'm a bit ornery. Yay! Sorry. Sorry if I didn't save any cake for you. I promise it's in the freezer, and next time you come by, we'll have it. But on February 20th, 2019, we launched our first five episodes of the podcast all at once, just to get off on the right foot. That's, I had researched and learned that this is what you should do to kind of get attention when you go out there. So I pre-recorded five episodes and launched them all at once. Episode one was what everyone should know about benzos. And it was an overview of the basics, the essentials, you know, to start with. Episode two was my benzo story. Yes, that one was dedicated to me. Big surprise, right? But seriously, I wanted to share my experiences up front so people, you know, knew where I was coming from and I could relate to everyone. And then episodes three, four, and five were a three-part series, Managing the Fear of Benzo Withdrawal, still one of my favorites. And then we were off. And now, a year later with episode 57, things are still pushing forward, and, and I thank you all for helping us get there. Last week, we experimented with a new type of episode, our smile episode, and it appears it was a hit. I received a lot of positive feedback about it. Thank you to those who took the time to write. It meant the world to me. And since it was successful, I decided to make it a regular part of the podcast. Today, I've added a new section to the podcast called the Smile Section. <laughs> this will be a section of positive stuff only. Stories, facts, anecdotes, anything that might put a smile on someone's face. That's the only criteria for this section. 
If it's related to benzos, great. If it's not, that's fine too. Today I share an anecdote. It's a small story from my past in the smile section, but that's just so I can get us kicked off. I want to hear from you. And just like with the benzo stories, I want your input, suggestions, especially your personal stories of success and happiness and joy. Anything positive you might want to share, even if it's something you read or heard somewhere. Just like every other part of this podcast, it is better when I have input from you. Now, just like all the other sections of the podcast, it probably won't be in every single episode, but it will be part of our regular lineup when we have content and when we have time to share it. And since we're on the topic of changes, I also want to note something very quickly that I've changed a bit of our script this week, just testing out a few changes to, you know, help us improve on brevity, <laughs> especially during that administrative stuff that I say every episode. You know what I'm talking about. Hopefully it'll come through a little bit cleaner and a little bit shorter. And one last thing, last week I mentioned our new donations page at benzofree.org donate, and a few of you jumped to task and made a donation. And I thank you from the bottom of my heart. I truly mean that. Your contributions will help to keep this podcast operating and growing. And I thank you. Our format today is our standard lineup, including all six sections. Our introduction, mailbag, benzo story, the new smile section, our feature, and our moment of peace. Today's feature is the story of benzos, and it's a really interesting story, actually. And you know what? It never hurts to understand the drug that we've been taking and where it came from just a little bit more. I'll blend a bit of science in with the history and try to liven it up now and then when I can. I hope you like it. And before we move on, don't forget we need your help. We need feedback of any kind. We truly want to hear from you. You can provide feedback in four ways. Comment directly on one of our podcasts or blog posts so others can see. Fill out our feedback form at benzofree.org feedback. Email us at podcast at benzofree.org or leave feedback on one of our podcast carriers so others can find us. While you're on the website, don't forget to sign up for our mailing list at benzofree.org slash subscribe. And if you wish to help support what we do here, you can visit our donations page at benzofree.org slash donate. Trust me, every little bit helps. And don't forget, the Benzofree podcast is for informational purposes only and should never be considered medical advice. And now, let's take a look inside our mailbag. Today we have one comment from Wendy in British Columbia, Canada. I've been corresponding with my friend Wendy since the beginning of the podcast. Yes, I was just talking about that, February 2019. We shared her story back in episode 23 titled, Perpetual Motion Madness, Excitability Symptoms of Benzo Withdrawal. And she has been a valued contributor to all we do along the way. She even suggested a fiction book series that I might like in one of her latest emails, and I just started reading the first book in that series today. I try and balance my reading between nonfiction, usually for research, and fiction, usually for pleasure, just to give my mind a break now and then. Anyway, I'm looking forward to this read. Thanks, Wendy. Wendy's comment was in two separate emails, but I thought they kind of fit together. Wendy first writes, Hi, friend D. It boggles my mind to think of all the emailing you must do. I feel so blessed that maybe because of my 30 years of yoga, I don't have pain. 
So exercise is my best way of dealing with withdrawal. Yesterday, when I was feeling way too revved up, instead of complaining about it to myself, I changed my approach to welcoming the healing. This feels like a step beyond accepting it. It was quite helpful. I have such ups and downs just within the confines of a day. Do you think this means I have brain damage on and off? I still feel so lucky to have made it through cold turkey at age 76. Oh, the ordeal of healing. I'm so thankful for what you're doing and that you're there. Gratitude from me. Then Wendy followed up with this email. A bit more to mention. Don't know if what I'll describe might relate to ecstasy. When I wake up, get up to pee and go back to bed, I invite my body to move as it would like, and often my toes on one or both feet want to start off. This is definitely not moving things in any order, just inviting any kind of spontaneous movement. This could include various parts shaking, being stroked, flinging, grimacing, and tapping, not EFT. I often feel cortisolish when I first wake up and feel relief from doing this. It goes on for however long it wants, and often I'm surprised when I see how much time has gone by. I'm guessing this is a way to give vent to the revved-up brain. I first learned of this kind of thing in my craniosacral therapy training, and there was a specific way to get it started, too subtle to describe. I think maybe it could just be started by intention, which is what I do now. Once years before withdrawal when I was doing this, I found it so relaxing that I measured my pulse before and after. It went down by 12 beats a minute, within about 20 minutes. The action eventually slows down on its own and stops. Wonder if it could be called freeform qigong. Well, thank you, Wendy. So much to share here. Let me back up a bit. Yes, withdrawal can be more difficult as we age. But even when we are in our 70s, we still heal. It's pretty amazing, actually. As for brain damage, that might be one of the most common questions I get. The truth is, we don't know. But I do know that from my experience working with others in the benzo community, people heal, even if it takes us years to do so. I know I am still healing, and although it can be a roller coaster at times, the improvement is there. Unfortunately, it can be so hard to see that while you're in the middle of it. And as for the method of handling ecstasy, that is great. Wendy mentioned Qigong, spelled Q-I-G-O-N-G. What is it, you may ask? <laughs> According to the National Qigong Association, Qigong can be described as a mind-body-spirit practice that improves one's mental and physical health by integrating posture, movement, breathing technique, self-massage, sound, and focused intent. It is often referred to as the internal portion of Tai Chi and is a series of repetitive mindful movements which helps the flow of Chi throughout the body. But Qigong is just one of many similar practices in this field. Wendy has been attempting to educate me on mind-body movement practices for a while now. She shared with me her thoughts on awareness through movement, ATM, Feldenkrais brain-body sessions, 
and even the use of swaddling wraps like an ace bandage or some may use an anxiety blanket to help ease tension and anxiety throughout the body. Wendy shares so many techniques which combine mind and body to investigate in her emails, and I plan to do that in coming months. But for now, I've put some links to these in our show notes if you'd like to learn more. What Wendy is referring to in these emails is combining movement and mindfulness through a variety of techniques and practice. When the akathisia hits her, due to her training and experience, she was able to accept it and allowed her body to move as it wanted to instead of fighting it. In benzo withdrawal, our nerves and muscles become disconnected somewhat, and the inner energy of akathisia creates distress and discomfort on top of that. And we get frustrated and resistant and fight against this feeling. But what if we didn't? What if we instead backed away a bit and observed it and paid attention to our movements and chose more healthy methods of helping our bodies heal and retrained our nerves to communicate properly with our muscles? When I was in withdrawal, I tried something somewhat similar called AAT, or Associative Awareness Technique, from my physical therapist. It's a method of helping to retrain our automatic brain and nervous system, and I think it helped me. Through techniques like AAT, Qigong, ATM, Feldenkrais, T-Touch, and others, perhaps we can help heal that disconnect and help our bodies heal. Now, I am not recommending any of these techniques here, mostly because I haven't really studied them at length, but also because, well, I can't give direct advice. This podcast is for informational purposes only. And that is all I'm doing here today. I'm sharing information. And I'm sharing information which one of our listeners has shared with me that she says had worked for her. Check it out if you like. And I might even do the same and may even share techniques like this more thoroughly in an upcoming feature. Thanks, Wendy, for sharing your comment with us. I look forward to learning more. And, of course, if you have a question or comment you'd like to ask us in private or for the podcast, just send it in to us on our feedback form at benzofreedorg slash feedback. Now let's move on to our Benzo story. Our story today is from a friend of ours in Florida. In her story, she requested I remove the names if I shared it, which I did. I also removed the company that she worked for. She sent her story to me a few months ago, and I wanted to make sure I shared it with you today. I just sent her an email to let her know I am sharing her story and to ask her how she's doing. Our friend writes, I have had a real bad case of restless legs since the mid-1980s. I would still be awake at 2 a.m. fearing a day of work ahead of me at 7 a.m. in the factory. After 30 years, I am now retired from a pharmaceutical company. We had never heard of restless legs, nor did I know of anyone else suffering from it. Then one day a girl from work told me of her experiences with it. I asked my doctor about it, and we began to experiment with different medications. Nothing worked better than a hot tub. After trying Halcyon for sleep, overriding RLS, and other sleep drugs with failure, my doctor wanted to try Xanax. It worked, but I developed tolerance, and he raised my dose over the coming years to 6 milligrams. Then he retired. <laughs> <laughs> 
Four years before he retired, I retired and moved to Florida. I would fly up to Michigan to visit family, friends, and my doctor. I had found a good family doctor in Florida who thought four milligrams of Xanax should do the job. It did. No withdrawal noticed. I've been on four milligrams since 2012. My good doctor did not renew her contract with the medical facilities near me in September of 2019, and when they called to inform me of that and scheduled me with a doc taking over for her, I asked, where is she? They said they didn't know. So I made an appointment with a different doc. This doc made me feel like a drug addict. She wanted me to taper off one milligram every three months, period, done in a year. I panicked. I confided in a few close friends. One found my original doctor and I made an appointment. Another friend gave me your info and forwarded a few podcasts my way. I am all for tapering off Xanax, but want to be smart and safe about it. I believe I have an injury. And here's why. In 2006, I started having chunks of memory loss. The company doctor, a psychiatrist, listened to my story of caretaker from my dad and husband with huge medical issues. I worked 8 to 10 hour days, 6 to 7 days a week at times. I take days off to run them to doctors or surgeries as needed. He said, you have PTSD. So, I lived with severe memory loss until I retired in 2008. Fast forward to now, then this is why I feel an injury has happened and been misdiagnosed. No blame, but hopefully it may improve as I get Xanax out of my system. Listening to the podcasts has given me great info to share with my sweet doctor. I know in my heart she will work with me to safely taper me down, and I plan on getting a counselor, eating healthy, deep breathing, joining a support group, and already have friends in place for additional support as needed. You can use my story, but not the names, please. I look forward to hearing from you and listening to more info, as I am a widow. I have all the time God allows me. My faith is strong. The biggest supporter, please pray for me as I share my experiences with you. Thank you. Well, I want to thank our friend for sharing her story. I'm so glad she has done so many things to help with her taper. A, a good doctor to work with her, a counselor, good diet, support group, and friends. So important to support her through this. She is planning this out and taking her time to do it right, and I applaud her for that. Way to go. Now, when I emailed her about sharing her story this week, she wrote back and let me know how she's doing. And she's doing well. She is holding at 2.5 milligrams of Xanax right now, down from 4, which was down from 6, and will restart her taper in May. She said she is feeling like she has had blinders on for years and even feels more alive. I know she still has a way to go, but she's doing great, and I am so proud of her progress. Please, take care, my friend, and keep in touch. And we still need stories, so please send them in when and if you'd like to share. Now let's move on to our smile section. 
Da -da 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 -da. Welcome to our smile section, <laughs> the first of its kind. In this new section, I will share you a variety of tidbits, stories from a variety of sources, information to lift your spirits, and anything else I can come up with. And like I said in the intro, you can help. Just like with our Benzo Stories mailbag and even the feature, I welcome input from you, our listeners. Share a story of yours or a story you read or heard or facts or information that you think is positive and might make people smile. I do ask that if you have a story or something to share that might belong to someone else, like something you read somewhere, please provide me the original source so that I can check it out and credit it accordingly. But that is not necessary today. <laughs> today, for our first installment of this section, I'm going to share one of my own. <laughs> Big surprise, I know. And it's a true story, despite what you may think. It's not really related to benzos in any way, and I think that's a good thing. It's, it's okay to let us think of other things than our struggles with recovery. And this one puts a smile on my face, and I hope it does the same for you too, if even in the slightest. So bear with me for a second as I tell you the story about my friend Hank. When I was in college, I had the best of friends. Friendships I have not surpassed in the 30 years since. When I went back to Kansas City a couple of weeks ago to watch the Super Bowl and see my family, I had a chance to reminisce with some of my friends about the fun we had in our youth and about what we meant to each other over our lives. Some of these friends I met in junior high and high school, others I met in college, and a few I met after that, but they were the best of the best. And as we talked about old times, one name of an old friend kept coming up in the conversation. Even though he wasn't there to remember with us, his memory was alive and strong. His name was Hank, and he was, well, unique. Unlike most of our group who love to tell jokes and kid and take life a little less seriously, Hank wasn't like that. He was a bit stiff. He never told a joke, nor laughed much at ours either. He was tall, good-looking, but with the palest of skin, and that's saying a lot since yours truly has all the markings of a typical ginger and the alabaster skin to match. But his features were that of a male model. So, of course, we liked hanging out with him because, well, the girls loved him, and we didn't mind the attention either. Unfortunately, Hank wasn't always the quickest to catch on to things. He was, well, a bit slow. You see, not long before he joined our group of guys, Hank had a, a head injury, a sports injury where his skull met a baseball bat. I have to admit it's amazing he's still with us. Unfortunately, he had difficulty speaking most of the time, and thus we watched out for him and took care of him. But that being said, Hank had a lot of amazing qualities, and he was an expert better than the rest of us at one thing. Hank could pull a prank. He had an uncanny gift of sneaking into the most unlikely places and surprise us, often wearing something bizarre. It was his own sense of humor, and we loved it. A perfect example was one night when he waited for what seemed like hours in one of my friend's showers, wearing only a Speedo and goggles just to surprise my roommate. And that was just the beginning. 
Now, these friends of mine have lived with each other in a variety of settings during the years, after college, in homes, condos, apartments, often shifting roommates each time we moved. We had legendary games of poker and hearts until all hours of the night. If four guys were at home, a game of something broke out, including the infamous indoor volleyball. (laughs) As you can guess, our lamps and furniture had a very short lifespan. But those days did come to an end, and we all started to meet our future spouses, and many of us got married. Still, Hank, well, he didn't really grow up along with the rest of us. He could not let go of his pranks, and weddings soon became his thing. The funny thing is, he never attended one of our wedding ceremonies, not one, but he rarely missed a wedding reception, or even a wedding night. And even if the wedding was out of town, Hank would be there. Several were in Kansas City, of course, but he also showed up in Santa Fe, New Mexico, and at my own wedding in Boulder, Colorado. You never knew where Hank would show, but you were sure that he would, often to the chagrin and sometimes displeasure of the bride. (laughs) At one wedding, he appeared at the reception wearing only soccer shorts and a shirt. At another in full formal wear, and he wasn't in the wedding party at all. At another, he was in bed in the wedding couple's hotel room waiting for them to arrive. And at mine, he was in the driver's seat of our car when my bride and I left the church. (laughs) And even though diction was not his forte, he relayed a classic Hank message via a written note which said, Shanna, dump the redhead and take me instead. (laughs) That was Hank. And we loved him for what he was. Well, when I was back in Kansas City this time, I wondered what had become of Hank. Somehow, as so often happens, we lose touch with those closest to us. Scott, his best friend in the group, said that he was staying with he and his family and had even started acting. I was so happy to hear this. In fact, Hank was recently in a local play where he had a pivotal role and he was on stage throughout most of the performance. And I just had to smile. Hank was a good friend, and I was so glad to hear he was doing well even though we had lost touch. Although Hank could never say it, I know he felt part of our group and treasured our friendship just as we did his. Thank God he didn't wind up in the dumpster that day at the sports store. Oh, wait a minute. Did I forget that part? I'm so sorry. I guess I didn't mention that at the beginning. Slight oversight. You see, Hank was a mannequin. A dummy from a sports store in Kansas City. A couple of guys were taking a baseball bat to him, and he was destined for the dumpster when Scott rescued him. And he truly became one of our most beloved and treasured friends. And why am I telling you this story today? Because I was reminded that weekend in Kansas City that we never know where or when or from who our most treasured memories will come. Hank was made of plastic. He couldn't move, couldn't talk, couldn't even get a date, although we did try, but that's another story for another day. And yet, some of my best memories of my time in my 20s involved Hank. We never know where those memories that we will treasure decades later will come from. So perhaps it's important to make the most out of them while they are here. 
And yes, by the way, Hank is real. In fact, everything I share today really happened. And thank God he is still going strong after 30-some years. And that, my friends, makes me smile. Anyway, thanks for indulging me on this trip down memory lane. I don't know if it was effective, and I don't even know if it made you smile, but I'm, I'm hoping it did in the slightest bit. If you have any anecdotes to share or something to help lift the spirits of our listeners, please let me know. Send it to us at benzofree.org slash feedback or at podcast at benzofree.org. Thanks for letting me bend your ear for a little while. Now, on to our feature. Our feature today is the story of benzos. It's a bit of history, a bit of science, and a bit of storytelling along the way, I hope. I wrote a whole chapter in my book on the history and science of benzos, and I used a chunk of that chapter as the foundation for today's feature. So, if you read my book, parts of this might be familiar, but only parts. For the podcast, I elaborated on it a bit, added a few more details, a few more facts, even an extra study or two, and voila, we now have the feature of the day. That's how this works. Also, I did share some of this information in one of our earlier episodes of the podcast, so in case you heard that there, a few of the things we say today may sound familiar. Now, there are a lot of references in today's feature, and I have cited all of them and put them in our show notes, as always. If you want to learn more about any of these topics, please check out those links. Now, there are a few pronunciations where, well, let's just say, I'm not a chemist, nor from Croatia or Poland, so I apologize in advance if I get them wrong. <laughs> and why am I telling you this story, you may ask? Well, first, I like history. As I age, I find it more and more fascinating. But most of all, if we don't know our history, what happens? Yes, as George Santayana, later quoted by Winston Churchill, once said, we are doomed to repeat it. Throughout this story, one thing is clear. We've been here before, but we never seem to learn our lesson. I hope you like it, and let's get started. Let's start at the very beginning. When did this whole benzo thing start, you may ask? Well, I could go all the way back to 3400 BC. Seriously. Maybe not benzos per se, but mind-altering drugs do go back a long, long time. According to the DEA, the U.S. Drug Enforcement Agency, the earliest reference to opium growth and its youth is in 3400 BC. That's over 5,000 years ago when opium poppy was cultivated in lower Mesopotamia. Benzodiazepine started a little bit later, somewhere around the mid-20th century AD. The history of benzos may appear dry on the surface, but it's not dry. It's actually a pretty good story. It has ups and downs, twists and turns, politics, celebrity, drama, you name it. So get comfy and let me tell you the story of benzos, or at least part of it. And to get started, we're going to go back to the 1950s with Leo Sternbach. Leo Sternbach was born on May 7, 1908 in the town of Opatja in western Croatia. Leo had a typical childhood. He spent his days whitewashing the fence, getting trapped in a cave, and romancing Becky Tha... No, wait a minute, that's Tom Sawyer. Sorry. I'm sure Leo's childhood was somewhat similar or not, but that's not what our story is about today. Let's jump ahead about 25 years. 
Krakow, Poland, 1931. Leo Sternbach receives his doctoral degree in organic chemistry from Jagiellonian University, where he started working on a chemical group called the heptoxidiazines. In 1941, he moved to the United States and joined the pharmaceutical firm Hoffman LaRoche in New Jersey. Now we're going to jump ahead to the 1950s. See, we're moving along quickly here, I promised you. <laughs> right about the time of Mad Men, if that helps create a visual backdrop and mood. Leo's bosses at Hoffman LaRoche wanted to find a better tranquilizer, and they assigned him to the task. Barbiturates had become infamous for dependence and addiction, and the drug companies needed to find a safer alternative. Hmm, dependence. Remember that part about history and doomed to repeat it I mentioned in the intro? Yeah, me too. I had a feeling this isn't the only time it's going to show up in this story, so stay tuned. Now, Leo remembered the chemical group he worked on in Krakow. You remember, the heptoxidiazines? And he wondered what would happen if he modified them a little. He tried over 40 different versions in animal testing, but none of them seemed to work. And the company abandoned the project. Then in 1957, a research assistant came across a powder named RO number 50690. Great name, right? <laughs> that had been synthesized a year earlier, but was never tested. So without much thought, Sternbach sent it out for testing. And he said, quote, We thought that the expected negative result would complete our work with a series of compounds and yield at least some publishable material. Little did we know that this was the start of a program which would keep us busy for many years. Later that year, RO number 50690 was found to have hypnotic and sedative effects, similar to meprobamate, or Miltown. What's Miltown, you ask? <laughs> I'm so glad you asked. See, I knew you'd find this interesting like I did. Let's talk just a bit about Miltown because we kind of need that as a foundation to move forward on benzodiazepines. In 1954, the first real medication for anxiety hit the American market. It was called Miprobamate and marketed as Miltown by Wallace Laboratories. There, there was no competition back then. It was the only tranquilizer on the market and it did very well. More than a billion of these, quote, peace pills had been manufactured by 1957. Following closely on the heels of Thorazine's big success in treating schizophrenia, some people referred to Milltown as psychiatry's penicillin. In fact, due to the stress of the Cold War, one civilian defense film even urged patriotic citizens to stash a bottle of tranquilizers in their fallout shelters. Unfortunately... Meprobamate had a few problems. In addition to its anxiolytic and hypnotic effects, it also had this nasty little side effect of physical dependence. In fact, sudden withdrawal from the medication caused dangerous withdrawal symptoms. If someone wanted to stop taking Milltown, they had to taper from the drug very slowly. Does any of this sound familiar? <laughs> Me too. Professor Malcolm Lader, in his paper, The History of Benzodiazepines, published in 1991, commented, The story of meprobamate, in retrospect, seems like a dress rehearsal for that of benzodiazepines. Milton was heavily marketed, and it did exceptionally well. By the 1960s, though, another class of drugs came onto the market, and Milton quickly faded from favor. 
<laughs> Getting back to Leo Sternbach and RO number 50690. Even though RO number 50690 is a very catchy name, they decided it needs something with a bit more sizzle. But since they're chemists, well, they may have fallen a bit short. They first came up with methaminodiazepoxide. Now, that's a mouthful. But they eventually changed it to chlorodiazepoxide, which it's still called today. This new substance combined a benzene ring of atoms with a diazepine ring of atoms. Yes, you guessed it. The very first benzodiazepine was born. On February 24th, 1960, the FDA approved the drug. It was officially released to the public after brief clinical tests at the University of Texas, even though some 20,000 people had already been administered it. According to A. Byrne in the journal Australian Family Physician, quote, controlled trials were not required for evaluation, and efficacy was demonstrated by anecdotes and testimonials. So, Hoffman-LaRoche had the go-ahead, called the drug Librium, derived from the word equilibrium. Now, Librium was considered safer than barbiturates at the time, since there were fewer side effects and fewer deaths from overdose. When Librium hit the market, it quickly outsold barbiturates and soon became the most prescribed drug in America. It remained that way until 1969, when it was replaced by another, perhaps better known benzo, Valium. Now, Leo Sternbach didn't exactly retire after the release of Librium. He kept working to find newer, better versions of benzodiazepines. In 1963, Hoffman-LaRoche released a brand new benzodiazepine, diazepam. The company named it Valium, for the Latin valere, meaning to farewell or to be healthy. Ironic? Perhaps. <laughs> Valium was two and a half times more potent than Librium, and just like its predecessor Milltown, it was heavily marketed to housewives. In 1966, the Rolling Stones released a song titled Mother's Little Helper that both celebrated and derided this medical breakthrough and its effect on the anxiety-prone suburban homemaker. If you've been around for a few years like me, perhaps you remember the lyrics. Mother needs something today to calm her down, and though she's not really ill, there's a little yellow pill? Well, that's all I can share without getting in trouble with the Stones and their lawyers, but it was a poignant commentary on the times. In the 1970s, the drug companies encouraged doctors to prescribe benzodiazepines instead of barbiturates through a campaign called CURB, which stood for Campaign on the Use and Restriction of Barbiturates. It was so successful that by 1978, Valium became the most commonly prescribed drug in the entire world. In fact, there was even a suggestion that Valium should be added to drinking water, you know, like fluoride. Go ahead, let that sink in for a while. According to Malcolm Later, the father of benzo awareness and research, we knew early on that there were problems with these drugs. In his paper, History of Benzodiazepine Dependence, published in Journal of Substance Abuse Treatment in 1991, there were two studies conducted in the 1960s which established the potential for dependence when given in high dosages. Still, 
many of these studies were either discredited or ignored. But as benzos became increasingly popular, a backlash did start to gain momentum, as more and more people complained of problems. Scott Stossel shares his perspective on the growing movement in his book, My Age of Anxiety. He said, quote, By the middle of the 1970s, the FDA had collected numerous reports of benzodiazepine dependence. Many patients who had been on high doses of Valium or Librium for long periods of time would experience excruciating physical and psychological symptoms when they stopped taking their medication. Anxiety, insomnia, headaches, tremors, blurred vision, ringing in the ears, the feeling that insects were crawling all over them, and extreme depression. And, in some cases, seizures, convulsions, hallucinations, and paranoid delusions. Doesn't sound like a lot of fun, does it? In 1979, U.S. Senator Ted Kennedy led a Senate subcommittee hearing into suspected dangers of benzodiazepines, where he said, quote, If you require a daily dose of Valium to get you through each day, you are hooked, and you should seek help. The backlash increased in the 80s. Two studies, one from Peter Tyrer in 1981 and one from Malcolm Later in 1984, explored the possibility of physical dependence from normal-dose, long-term benzodiazepine use. Malcolm later referred to their findings as such, quote, These studies established unequivocally that normal-dose dependence, as manifested by a physical withdrawal syndrome, was a real entity, and supervened even if the dosage was tapered off. Controversy still raged, but the idea of dependence from this class of drugs began to gain acceptance. Long-term benzo users were suffering from severe withdrawal symptoms, and the media picked up their stories. The chief medical officer in the United Kingdom warned that long-term use of benzodiazepines caused or aggravated depression and increased suicidal tendencies. Several patients even sued, but they were mostly unsuccessful. But thankfully, the FDA quickly created a black box warning for these drugs, instituted a slow and controlled tapering plan for those affected, and halted all new long-term benzodiazepine prescriptions. Oh yeah, and all the people on the planet were fed, wars were ended forever, no one ever got sick again, and love encompassed the entire globe. (laughs) Sorry, a bit of sarcasm there, I know. As you can see, those last statements were perhaps a bit, well, premature, (laughs) to say the least. Back to the real story. The pharmaceutical companies were left with a dilemma. Valium was getting a bad reputation, so they had to do something. Well, what do you do when your most popular drug is found to have problems? Well, you could create a brand new drug, or even better, release the old class of drugs all over again, but this time, make them even stronger. Yes, I know that sounds pretty cynical, and I know that I promise to be as objective as I can on this podcast, but sometimes they just don't make that easy, do they? In 1981, pharmaceutical manufacturer Upjohn, now part of Pfizer, released a new drug called Alprazolam, and they marketed it under the catchy name of anyone? Yes, you are so smart. Xanax. While still a benzodiazepine, 
the pharmaceutical companies claimed these newer drugs were, well, different, even safer. And yet, this new group of benzodiazepines were actually more potent than the ones in the 70s. In fact, alprazolam Xanax, clonazepam clonopin, and triazolam halcyon are 20 times more potent than Valium and 50 times more potent than Librium, the original benzo. Now, when Xanax was first released back in 1981, the company wasn't sure it would be a hit at first. Valium was huge for treating anxiety in the 70s, but faced a significant backlash towards the end of the decade. Thus, Upjohn took a slightly different tack and tested Xanax to treat a brand new condition, something called panic attacks, in addition to anxiety. And according to a Forbes article titled America's Most Popular Mind Medicines, Xanax became the first drug to get an approval for panic attacks. Now, as Xanax started to gain market share, a new class of antidepressant drugs called Selective Serotonin Reuptake Inhibitors, or SSRIs, were also created. Primarily designated for treating depression, they also claimed benefits with anxiety. In 1987, Prozac, an SSRI, entered the market and started to challenge Xanax for the top spot. But, as you may have guessed, this still wasn't the end for benzos. If it was, well, I guess I wouldn't be talking to you about this today. Despite competition from new classes of psychiatric medications, by 1986, Xanax had overtaken Miltown, Librium, and Valium to become the best-selling drug in history and remained the top-selling psychiatric drug through 2016, despite repeated warnings from endless studies and organizations. Even the APA recognized the dependence that these drugs can cause. In 1990, the American Psychiatric Association Task Force on Benzodiazepine Dependency reported the following, quote, Historically, long-term, high-dose, physiological dependence has been called addiction, a term that implies recreational use. In recent years, however, it has become apparent that physiological adaptation develops and discontinuous symptoms can appear after regular daily therapeutic dose administration. In some cases, after a few days or weeks of administration. Some therapeutic prescribing is clearly not recreational abuse. The term dependence is preferred to addiction, and the abstinence syndrome is called a discontinuous syndrome. Well, I don't know about you, but I sure liked hearing that from the APA. Unfortunately, that was 30 years ago. I wish I could say that since 1990, things have improved, but that would be far from the truth. The use of benzos has only continued to increase. Even though Xanax was surpassed as the most popular psychiatric drug by Zoloft and SSRI in 2018, Xanax remains incredibly popular and in the number two spot with Ativan, another benzodiazepine, also in the top ten. The percentage of outpatient medical visits that led to a benzodiazepine visit nearly doubled from 3.8% in 2003 
to 7.4% in 2015. Benzodiazepines are now prescribed at about 66 million doctor's appointments a year in the U.S. alone, according to a report by the U.S. National Center for Health Statistics. In a January 2020 article in New Scientist, the author, Jessica Hamzalu, stated, quote, This means that for every 100 adults that visit an office-based doctor over the course of a year, 27 visits will result in a prescription for a benzodiazepine. Whew. In 2014, the market demand for general anxiety medications was valued at $3.2 billion and is expected to rise to $3.7 billion by the end of 2020. Benzodiazepine use and prescribing practices are increasing significantly despite warnings of their dangers, and they are far too often being taken long-term. It appears that no one is taking a look at our history, and we continue to repeat it. Will we ever learn? I don't know. Anyway, thus endeth our brief tour through Benzo history. <laughs> Thank you for your time and attention. If you plead, pass your quizzes up to the front for grading. We would appreciate it. <laughs> and that, of course, wraps up our feature. I hope you enjoyed it and found it informative as I did. I don't know, but I'm curious to see what you think. I think it's information that we need to remember. And it's especially information that we need to have available to us when we talk about these drugs. It's important to know where they came from, how they got to where they are, and most of all, it's important for us to learn from our history so we stop making the same mistakes over and over again. And now, before we move on to our moment of peace, give me just about 30 seconds for our disclaimer. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be considered medical advice in any way. The host of this podcast is not a medical professional, nor is he engaged in rendering medical, health, or psychological advice, nor any other kind of personal professional services. The views and opinions expressed by our listeners and interview guests on this podcast, whether read from textual submissions or presented in their own voice, do not necessarily reflect those of the Benzofree podcast or of its host. Withdrawal tapering on any other change in dosage of benzodiazepines, non-benzodiazepines, or any other prescription drugs should only be done under the direct supervision of a licensed physician. Our full disclaimer can be viewed on our website at benzofree.org slash disclaimer. And that brings us to our closing, our moment of peace. It's just one minute, and it's an opportunity to quiet your mind a bit before you return to the chaos of the real world. Please remember that you should only do this if you are in a safe place where you can close your eyes, relax, and let the world pass by without you for a minute. Today we are going to use the Buddhist tradition of Tonglen. You can also think of it as taking and sending meditation. Tonglen takes our focus off ourselves for once and places it on someone else who is suffering. It may sound counterintuitive, but it can be quite effective. We start with something called bodhicitta. This is just a moment of openness and calm. You open your heart and mind to the space around you, releasing the tightness in your body.
Then we start the practice of Tonglen. We breathe in the suffering of someone else. This can be the suffering of someone you know, a family member or a close friend, someone suffering from illness, loss, or loneliness, perhaps someone who is going through withdrawal or recovery. You can even focus on yourself to help get you started if you choose. Breathe in their pain, their darkness, and their suffering. And then on the out-breath, breathe out love, healing, and compassion. Send this positive energy out to the person you are focused on. Visualize this energy transferring from you to the other. Start this practice with one person in mind, and then you can expand it to everyone who is in a similar situation, if you like. Breathe in their suffering and breathe out hope and recovery. That's the practice of Tonglen. So let's get started. Close your eyes and relax. We start with the bodhicitta. Breathe slowly and naturally. And recognize the tight places in your body. And breathe into them, relaxing them. As you do this, open your heart and mind to the space around you. Now picture the person you wish to help. And breathe in all the suffering from that person, taking it all inside. Then breathe out love, compassion, and positive energy as much as you can give. And feel the wonder of that energy as it passes from your body to theirs. Continue to do this throughout the meditation. And remember, if your mind wanders, just gently bring it back to your breath and the taking and sending of the tonglen. No judgment at all. Continue to do this for one minute.
Our next episode is episode 58, and it will be released next Wednesday. Thank you again for joining me today, and please, let us know how we did. We'd love to hear from you. Keep calm, taper slowly, and take care of yourself. I'll see you next time.